Hello, this is conversation 13 of the Cooley account. We're going to pick up directly after Bob leaves the crime task force office and downloads information to Gary Shapiro. Shortly thereafter, some FBI agents show up at Bob's office. Here's conversation 13. You know, because when, when I was there talking to him, that's when he told me he had to contact Belukas. When he told me, as, as I'm sitting there and he said that, I'm in a state of shock because I thought, I'll get killed now. I knew that Jenner and Brock was the mob's lawyer. I, you know, Pat Marcy had already told me. I mean, I was there when they were talking about one of the uh, mob guys that got his sentence cut and the way he got a cut was they paid 25000 to uh, Tom Sullivan, the ex-U.S. attorney. And I knew that that's where Belukas had come from and, that, and I figured that's where he'd be going afterwards because uh, that's how these people become multimillionaires. They wind up protecting certain people and then when when they resign, uh, they start getting paid millions of dollars from the, you know, from the law firms that they, they, they join with. There's nothing I can do about it. I, I already did it. I went up there and I did what I did. I do go and get my uh, corned beef sandwich and, and try to go about my business. Uh, I had one of the I had one of the worst weeks ever gambling. Uh, the week before I had won, I had won probably close to two hundred thousand. This week. It was the first time in a long time where I had just had a horrible, I just had a horrible, you know, thing. Everything I did was wrong. I'm doing stupid things. I'm making, I'm making bets I never would have made before. And this lasted, but you know, my frame of mind lasted probably for two or three days. And now I'm, I'm driving out when I'm driving before I get into my car. I'm looking under the car to make sure there's not a bomb in there. I'm looking to make sure I'm not being followed because I have no idea what's going on, you know, in the background. Uh, and I'm like that probably for, you know, for about three or four days. And then I try to just forget about that because, again, it's done. It's about, uh, I think, a week or maybe when I come into my office and my secretary, Judy, tells me that there's some FBI agents back in your office. Now, again, I have no idea how she knew there were FBI agents. And uh, when I go back there, there's three agents sitting back there introduced themselves and uh, they said, uh, you know, Gary told us that you maybe wanted to talk to us about something. I said, did you find out whether or not I have any potential problems? And they said, no, we don't. And I said, well, if that's the case, then before I talk to you, I want to set some, you know, oh, they, said, they said to me, you know, one of them said to me, are you, are you feeling okay? And, you know, I look at them and I know why for the life of them, they can't understand why somebody in a position like me, you know, would want to come and do what I'm doing. So I said, no, I'm fine. There's no health. I have no health problems. I said, but what I'd like to do, I said, is talk to the U.S. attorneys, talk to Gary and sit down and set the ground rules. I said, because the only thing I want, you should immunity, uh, which means that if they have a case, they can still bring a case against me, but they can't use my own words to prosecute me. And I said, that's that's all I want. I said, and so we arranged a meeting. Uh, it was in, for the next day or, the, or a day or two afterwards, and we met in a motel and, and, in Countryside over there right off of Joliet Road. We met, we met in a motel. And this is about, about a mile or so from where I live now. I live up there in Countryside. Uh, when we go to the meeting, when I get to the meeting, there's about four or five people there. 
uh, you know, they said, well, you know, what do you want to tell us? And we want to know what you can or can't do or what you want to do. And again, they asked me, you know, uh, what do you want? And I said, I just want to get use immunity. And uh, we've talked to, uh, we've talked to Belukas and he's indicated that, uh, you know, they, they will do that. So what do you want to tell us about, you know, some of the things that you've done? I had stopped dealing with these people and I had stopped doing any of this stuff for almost uh, probably two, two and a half years. It's been a long period of time. Greylord came and I mentioned before how that how that happened with Terry Hake and the rest of it. I couldn't have been more pleased because now the system is going to be cleaned up and I'll be even more successful because, you know, I, I'm not afraid to take a case to trial and I'll win. I, I'll win most of my cases. I wasn't worried for a minute about me being indicted because I knew nobody would dare cooperate against me because I was inner circle first ward. And the first ward was the mob. And uh, and people were terrified of, of what would happen if they ever crossed the mob. As we're talking, after we, I mean, I told about some of the things, you know, about some of the cases, the Harry Alleman case and a couple of the other cases that I was involved in, that the, and they wanted to know about some judges and whatever, and there were a lot of judges I didn't tell them about. A lot of these, lot of these judges were friends of mine, and uh, they weren't evil people. The only judges I told them about were judges like Maloney and a few of the others that would do anything and everything for the almighty dollar. I really talked about at that time were the uh, were the ones connected to the organized crime, connected to the first ward, connected closely to Pat, uh, Judge Scatillo, and, and some of the others. And as we're there, I, I warned them. I said, you know, there's something I want to mention to you. And they said, what's that? And I said, the liaison you guys use with the police department is part of organized crime. I said, he's connected to Pat Marcy. And they said, who's that? And I said, Hanhart. And one of the one of the FBI agents now looks at me and he says, "You don't like you don't like him, do you?" And I said, "No, I don't." And he said, "Is that why you're making this up about him?" And I got right into his face because I I knew he was the one that the FBI worked with. No, do you want to pa- do you want to for one moment? I think we touched on this. Explain who Hanhart was. He had been a detective years before, and he was the one that uh, killed a few people and, and had a reputation as being a, a law and order guy. And he had moved up in the ranks. He would meet over there openly with Marcy at counselors, and he would come in there once, twice a week. I knew that he was the one that had delivered some of those guys up so they could be killed by the mob. I knew all about him. He was involved in a whole lot of other illegal activities with a number of the mobsters. Uh, he had been a deputy superintendent. Before that, he wanted to be, he was chief of detectives. And the reason he wanted to be chief of detectives was he could let all the bookmakers know when they were about to be arrested or when they were building cases against them uh, so he could protect these people. And he also issued an order that the Chicago police couldn't leave the Chicago area anymore to go make arrests. He, he set the rule that they couldn't go into any of the suburbs just outside the city. And that's where they made probably more arrests than in the city. He issued an order that that he had personally had to okay all the search warrants when they find out where somebody's working out of, you know, out of his house or in a motel or whatever. Before they would get a search warrant uh, and go to the judge with it, he had to okay those. So he was finding out where everything was. But he was just an evil, an evil person. But he was one of the top people in the police department. Obviously, this is common knowledge because he was indicted and I think he died before he was convicted. But I recall there were a series of robberies 
Joe uh, Rogers. Exactly. Yeah, he, was, he, was exactly. Involved, he was involved in all those. There were these annual jeweler events at McCormick Place, and there were these robberies of the jewelers. And I don't know if it was one year or a couple of years, or, but it turned out ultimately that he was orchestrating it because he was the one that was protecting these people, but he was also, because he was protecting them, he knew the details and he was robbing them. Not him specifically, but a group of people that he controlled were robbing them. He was the liaison between the FBI and the police department. Everything they were doing, they came to him. And this one agent in particular, obviously, was a personal friend of his. He was personal friends with these people. Do you remember but, who this guy was? I never saw agent? him again. Yeah. They never brought him in because, I mean, I got right into his face. When he said to me, you don't like him, is that why you're making up these things about him? That was what started the investigation of him. When I gave him that information, I told him, I said, this guy's involved with all, you know, with all kinds of corruption. What I also told them at that time was when those burglars burglarized Arcardo's house, you know, they wound up killing him. After the second one happened, they found the one, the one guy and they killed him. And then they found the second guy and they killed him. Butchie Petroselli was Harry Alleman's partner, basically. Basically, he was the one that traveled out of state with him to, you know, when they were when they were doing hits. And uh, he had become a good, a close friend of mine and started giving me all kinds of business after after the Harry Alleman case. I used to meet him usually once or twice a week. And the place I would meet him, there was a junkyard right around 11, not, not, close, not far from 11th and State in the police building. And when, I, when I'd be going, by this time now, I'm living out in the suburbs and I have to drive in to go to, to, go to 11th and State to to the courthouse. I would meet Butchie where they would strip cars and the rest of it. And he had some kind of an interest there. And I would meet him in front of the place and he'd pay me. And we happened to see where the one, another one of the burglars got killed. And I said to him, I can't believe these guys are so dumb to get caught. You know, after, especially after they killed the one, you know, they killed one or two, you know, how could he be so dumb to get caught? You know, you think the guy would be, you know, would be out of town or would, you know, would be unbelievably careful. And he said to me, what would you do? He said, if you're a burglar, what would you do when the police come and, and tell you they've got a warrant for your arrest and they take you in custody? He says, Hanhart took care of that. I had seen Hanhart many times at counselors. And I thought he's a nice guy. I mean, I knew he was initially, I knew he was, you know, obviously corrupt of sorts because he's meeting with Marcy. Over a period of time, I had heard more about it, but when I heard this, I was disgusted. You know, I was disgusted by him. But anyhow, you know, that's how they wound up finally investigating him after all these years, and they indicted him. Somebody went, when I was a policeman, I had gotten all kinds of awards, including, as I told you before, you know, Patrolman of the Year in my district, but I had gotten all kinds of awards for making arrests and for all kinds of other things. My entire file disappeared. When they were when I when I first surfaced and it came out, I was a crooked cop and, and you know, and this is the most corrupt lawyer of all time and all the rest of that. And I was a dope dealer, or I mean I was I was caught with dope and that's why I was doing what I was doing. And I guarantee you Hanhart was the one that, that took care of that because when I you know, when I when I surfaced and there was the explosion in the papers, I guarantee you they wanted to make sure in every way that you know, that they could uh that, you know, that my reputation could be destroyed and whatever. They all disappeared. You know, when you you have your police record, whether it be good or bad, it's there. It doesn't disappear, it stays there. But uh all those awards and all that, you know, that I got it it showed nothing for my for my, you know, my police record it showed nothing absolutely nothing and you think hanhart had that erased well i have no doubt 
<laughs> I have no doubt. They used all their, their newspaper contacts to, to come up with these bullshit stories that I can say that I was a I was a dope addict and I was selling dope. And I mean, they were brutal in terms of what they said. All these reporters were saying the same thing because of Eddie Burke, obviously, and uh, and Pat Tewitt. Pat Tewitt was involved with the Eddie Burke, you know, with Eddie Burke scandals. Pat Tewitt probably thought he was going to be indicted because he knew that I knew all about what he had done with the uh, Cameron case and whatever. There was a, there was another policeman on a case I was working on when I was with the feds. I had been approached by one of these vice cops, a black guy, and uh, he approached me when I was in court. I had a case that I was, it was a state case, and I was still allowed to handle state cases. That was before Belucas notified Richie Daly of what I was doing. It was a narcotics case where I had worked in a factory up in the northern, northwestern suburbs, and the police came in and the police arrested him. According to the police reports, they found a bag of dope on the lunchroom table when he was there, and they, and they arrested him. I felt it was a relatively weak case. I was going to take it before a judge on the up and up, and the policeman approaches me in the hall and he says, you know, hey, how are you? I knew who he was. I had seen him many times, but I'd never spoken to him and I'd never had a case with him before. And he said, well, he said, you know, I can arrange to, you know, I can arrange to say the right thing. Uh, you know, and he tells me I deal with Dean Wolfson and with some of these others and I and I hear you're a good guy and, and I can trust you. And, and basically, you know, if I, mean, if I pay him some money, he'll make sure he testifies a certain way. Uh, so when he approaches me, you know, I write Right away say, well, you know, let me think about it. And then I then I contact Steve Bowen and I tell him what happened. And I and he said, Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And so I started now, now, now wait, hold on. Steve Bowen is your handler at the FBI or at the Yeah, I worked with Steve Bowen and Marie Dyson. These are the two that I work with. And uh, and, and I, I contact him and he said, Sure. He said, Sure you can. I wind up making a payment of I think a thousand or fifteen hundred to him and uh, and the case gets dismissed. He tells the prosecutor that, uh, you know, they don't have, you know, they were like three people or I don't, I don't, he told them some bullshit and indicated basically that, you know, it was a, you know, it wasn't a good arrest and they threw the case out. And now I see him again in court, maybe a week or two after this. And, and I'm not wearing a wire at the time. And he says, look, he says, you know, a lot of the, he says, some of the other lawyers, what they're doing is they're telling me, uh, you know, when, when they've got, you know, a client who's going to have a lot of money and, and we go on, on our own time and we arrest them. And they say, so we go in there, he says, and, and we take the money and uh, we give you a 25% split. <laughs> now, now when he tells me this, I make contact and I tell him, hey, look, you know, I take, I tell him that, uh, you know, this guy now, you know, this guy obviously is part of a ring of policemen that are, you know, that are doing this. On their off-duty time, these cops are getting information from lawyers and on their off-duty, they're still wearing their uniform, but then they're going and, and shaking people down? That's exactly what he's telling me they're doing. What I'm doing with you is I'm repeating exactly what's told to me. Sure. I'm just trying to understand the details for clarity. But yes, but yeah, yes, okay. what they do, they go in there without a warrant because they aren't going to arrest them. They're going to rob them and they steal their money and they steal their dope. That's what he tells me that other lawyers are, you know, other lawyers are doing. You know, now I've already got the okay to wear a wire on them. So I get wired up. And when I see him again in court, I intentionally go looking for him. When I see him again, I tell him, yeah, okay, that sounds good. I said, but I said, no, I get 25%, right? Yeah, well, absolutely. And we talk, we talk about it a bit. When I get hold of these people, I said, listen, let's get this deal set up. And they tell me they don't want to do it. 
I said, why not? It's too dangerous. <laughs> okay, this is from this is from Belucas. It's too dangerous for the uh, for the policeman or for the agent or whatever to go in there. What also happens is the police superintendent is a black superintendent. I get invited to go to his party. It turns out this copper is a close friend of his. He invites me to come down there to meet him in his uh, when his retirement party. It was over at ninety fifth over at ninety fifth Street over at the. Uh, I can't think of it. It's a big restaurant right off of 95th and Western. But I go meet the superintendent. They never indicted this guy. Who was the the superintendent? And and do you remember the cop's name? I don't remember his name. It was the black. It was the only black at that time, the only black superintendent that we had. It would have been the superintendent in uh, uh, 1989. He was a superintendent, I think, for about, you know, for about 10 years, I think. But it turns out. And who was the cop that was his friend? Do you remember that individual? I can't remember his name either. I just don't remember his name right now. He was the only policeman I ever wore a wire on. And the only reason was, like I say, because of, you know, what he was with. When they're robbing these people and they're taking their dope, they can do only one of three things with the dope. They can sell it. They can plant it on somebody or they can use it. Any of these coppers that got involved with, you know, with, with dope that, that I found out or that I learned were, you know, using dope. I wanted nothing to do with these people. And so that but, whole, uh, just to put a button on it, the wire you wore on that cop and everything surrounding that with the FBI, nothing came of that. They never did a thing. No, never indicted him either. I assumed he would have been indicted for the bribery on that, you know, on the one thing where I gave him money. I gave him their money, but they never indicted him. Don't ask me why they didn't. And it was about maybe, you know, remember it was about 10 years after that when they did finally indict some cops for doing just that. So this, may have been, I, don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but uh, this would be Leroy Martin. No, that was him. Yeah, that was Leroy, yeah. The 56th police superintendent of Chicago, and he was there from 87 through 92. He ran for Cook County Sheriff as a Republican. There are no Republicans. There, at that time and probably to this day, there are no Republicans. There, there's just somebody. He, he was a Democrat all along. He suddenly says, I'm a Republican now, and he runs as a Republican. And the reason they do that, if, if they run for a countywide job, not a city job, but a countywide job, because a lot of the suburbs, those are Republicans. Let me correct what I said, and, and you're absolutely right in what you just said. He ran in the Republican primary and won, did Leroy Martin. In 1998, he got 100,000 votes, which was 100% of the vote total. So clearly he was the only candidate running. But he ran against Michael Sheehan, who was the incumbent. This is for Cook County Sheriff. He lost that election. And that Sheehan's was my cousin. Is he? Well, Sheehan beat him soundly. This was 1998. Sheehan beat him by, he had twice as many votes. He, he got 71% of the vote. Leroy Martin only got uh, 29% of the vote. Um, so a little more than half. It was, it was 900,000 votes for your cousin Sheehan and 366,000 votes for Leroy Martin. But it's funny, he did run as a Republican. All those quote-unquote Republican watchers, they were Democrats that would just identify themselves as a Republican. I'm a Republican today. And the the Democrats controlled absolutely everything, but they did the same thing. If somebody's running now, the sheriff is a countywide job, not just Chicago. Uh, Dvorak, too. Remember when Dvorak was the undersheriff? 
And I think then became the sheriff. Dvorak was a Democrat. And suddenly he says, I'm, I'm a Republican now. And he runs, he runs in the Republican primary. And then in his case, he did, he did win or he got, he got in there. But let's uh, put a fine point on Leroy Martin. He passed away uh, in 2013 at the age of 83 or 84. You, you were friends with him and invited to this party. There's no accusations that he was involved in any police corruption. You're saying that there was a cop that you had wore a wire on who was an African-American police officer. And when you went to this party, party that cop was at that party oh absolutely he, he yeah. took me there i went and i met him and went there with him apparently leroy had been one of his partners in vice prior to that he's telling me anything we need whatever he's my friend and whatever that was why i was introduced to him you know you take it from there he he, he introduced me and told me that anything you need and that's why he brought me to meet him he said something really interesting which i never even thought of which is that this was the only time you ever wore a wire on a police officer and it just kind of fell into your lap oh absolutely i have been approached by these guys before and just had wanted nothing to do with them and the reason being it was so obvious what these people were doing that eventually it was going to be an explosion and this is why in traffic court too i was approached by jimmy lefevre the first time you know with my first case and said this is the first time it's on the house telling me afterwards that you know you pay on these but after a short period of time i found somebody else i could deal with you know when i had to do it because he was just so obvious and these people were so obvious you know and the traffic court was corrupt that uh, i wouldn't deal with them same as guns and gambling court with judge sedini i never paid him by hand. What I did with Judge Sedini, I would go into the chambers while they were out on the bench. When I, every case I had, even if they would throw the cases out, even if I, I came in there and the police threw them out, I'd go put $100 into his coat pocket. I didn't like you know doing hand-to-hand stuff with people. And, uh, and if and when I did, I'd never talked. I would just shake a hand and something would be there. I was ultra careful from day one when I practiced law. I knew the system, the corrupt system would, would eventually be you know, somebody like Terry would come in. Uh, there's no way they could build a case on me. Let's go back before we went down the story of this cop that you wore a wire on. We were going down another storyline, the hotel and countryside. I think that was the name of the hotel. I think it was the countryside. I'm pretty sure that was the name of the motel there. So now they said to me, well, do you owe any money gambling? I had just had one of the worst weeks of my life, and uh, and I had money in boxes and whatever. Prior to that, like I told you, I had one close to 200000 I had collected all that money already. And they said to me, do you owe any money? Or, no, do you owe any money, anybody money gambling? And I said, well, yeah. I said, I do. I said, I'm not worried about that. I'm sure I, you know, I'll be able to win that money right back. And that's when they said to me, well, no, you can't do any more gambling. And I said, what do you mean I can't? You know, you can't because we can't allow you to do something that's illegal, which makes no sense whatsoever. I had anticipated again, because now, you know, in that couple of day period after they came to see me, I he just had a funny feeling that, you know, that Belukas would try to stop me in any way he could from doing what I'm doing. I just had that feeling. Obviously, I didn't get killed. <laughs> Obviously, it's been, you know, it's been a period of time and, and I haven't been killed and nobody tried to kill me. I didn't see anybody following me. And, and so I said to them, I said, I don't have to pay any of the money. That's OK. Then uh, I talked to Johnny DeFranzo and he told me not to pay anybody. The same guy that, you know, had said, you know, that, that about about um, Hanhart said, you know, you mean to tell us that you can talk to DeFranzo? You know, that sounds like bullshit to me. These are the last words I ever had with this guy. 
And I, I looked at him and, and I just said, uh, you know, if I tell you, if I say something, it's something I can do. I said, he's been like a personal friend to me, uh, you know, for years. Uh, he said, you know, would you wear a wire? I said, yeah, that's no problem. <clears throat> I'd wear a wire. And uh, so I did. The next day, I, you know, Steve meets me and puts a wire in me and I go to see Johnny. What I had done uh, in that couple of day period, I'd gone, in fact, I went first to see Marco. I hadn't been dealing with these people now since they were going to kill me. I had done none of their business from them. I represented a lot of mobsters still who came to me, you know, directly. And so I went to see Marco. He was at his club. And I said, Marco, I said, you know, I've got a little problem with somebody. There was one of these bookmakers, Bob Johnson, uh, that uh, was really, you know, calling me up and screaming and yelling. He thought he was a bad guy. During that week period, somebody shot some bullet holes through my window at the office. Somebody came driving by and shot a couple of bullets. And I suspected it was Bob Johnson. Uh, I said, you know, I've got a little bit of a problem with somebody. He just basically brushed me off. He basically, you know, said, you know, well, okay, well, and it just appeared to me that, you know, he wasn't going to do anything. And so I went to see Johnny myself. Johnny owned a car dealership up on, I think, was on Diversity. And he owned a Chrysler dealership at the time. And I went to see him and I stopped in there and, you know, I hadn't seen him in, in, in quite a while. Hey, Bob, how are you? And, you know, and we go back and we talk and he says, what's up? You know, I haven't seen you in a while. I said, well, look, John, I said, I've got a little problem with somebody. And he said to me, what do you mean you have a problem? And I said, yeah, I've got some guy, you know, that I owe money to. And I, and he says, well, you know, you're not afraid of anybody, are you? And I said, you know, well, no. I said, but he said, you know, who do you owe money to? And uh, and and I told him a few of the people. I told him about Bob Johnson. He said, you know, who is he with? Meaning, you know, who's he paying street tax to? And I said, I don't think he's with anybody. He says, Bob, I don't want you paying anybody. You don't pay any of these people. You don't, you know, you know, you don't owe them anything. And, and, uh, your debt is cleaned up. Don't worry about it. He says, you know, you've got to stop gambling. If you're getting to the point where you're getting yourself in trouble, you got to stop doing it. And I said, I said, okay. Anyhow, I told these people that and I put the wire on. So now when I go back to see Johnny with the wire, I come in there and he says, everything okay? You know, that's all taken care of, right? And he, and he, and then he tells me, he says, this Johnson's not with anybody. And I said, John, these guys tell me they want me to go pay some of these people so they can build cases on them. One in particular, this guy named Barbaro, who I had seen on TV a couple of weeks before. He was a, he, he was, he was a bookmaker I dealt with. Uh, you know, in fact, I was, I was dealing with that at that time. And he's one of those I owed money to. And he said, I don't want you paying anybody. And I said, you know, John, I said, you know, but uh, this, this guy's a nice guy. And I said, he's a nice guy. He says, I know he needs the money. I said, and he said, well, you know, I told you not to pay. And if you want to or whatever, you know, so be it. So I arranged to go see, to see Barbara and I put a wire on and I call him and I tell him, you know, I'll meet you at the office and, and I, I want to pay you something. And he tells me over the phone, well, that's okay. You don't have to. And I said, you know, but I want to, which is really kind of bizarre. I go to, I saw, so I go to see him. I'm going to meet him at a beef stand over on Joliet Road. In fact, it's about a block or two from the motel where I'd met with these agents. This is the first time they put a wire on me to go make my first payment. $1,500 I'm going to pay him. And I drive over to the stand and he's sitting there in the window looking at me as I pull up. 
I pull up right in front of him, and he's looking right at me. He's about maybe 15, 20 feet away at the most, you know, sitting on a stool by the window. And I pull up in the car, and I step out of the car. And when I step out of the car, I feel the wire falling down. I had put the wire, I had strapped the wire on my on my leg, and it fell down. The, the unit itself, I mean, fell down. It hit my foot. It was, you know, by my foot. And the moment that happened, and he's looking right at me, I pointed over to the right. I pointed to my right to try to keep him from you know looking in my direction and he turns his head and I pull the thing back into the car and now I don't know if he saw the wire or not because I'm wearing the big unit that's laying there on the ground next to my foot and then I drive home I drive back I live only about three blocks from there four blocks from there and I get back home and when I get <laughs> and when I get home now these guys this is the first time they've given me money to go pay somebody I drive home and I go upstairs and a couple of minutes later, you know, they're ringing the doorbell. And I what, what the hell happened? And I told him, I said, the wire fell out. I said, and he's looking right at me. Are they present, the handlers? They're watching. This is the first time I'm, you know, I've, getting, I've gotten money and all. They're watching me with their money. And now they suddenly see me just drive back home. And they don't know what's going on, obviously. You know, and they said, oh, well, that's a problem. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. And with that, the phone rings and it's Barbara. And he says, what the hell, what the hell's going on? And I said, didn't you see him? And he said, see who? I said, looked like an undercover car over there in the gas station. Oh, he says, Oh, you got to understand. He was just on TV about a week or so before as a major bookmaker that had been indicted. He had just been indicted uh, and he was indicted by the feds. Oh, okay. Well, you know, well, well, what about what about the money? So I said, I'll meet you. I said, I'll meet you across the street. There's a there's a restaurant there, the Flame, and I said, I'll meet you over there in the parking lot. So I told Steve and Marie, who was there, my I faked them out and whatever. I said, let me go, let me go pay him before I leave. This time, I put my gun on. I strap a gun on and I go over to meet him. And you know, in case it's some kind of a trap from him, you know, he's going to be the loser. But I go and I make the payment. After I had talked to, you know, Johnny DeFranzo, the next time now, when I when I go to make a payment, this time I met Barbara at my office. This, this will be my second payment to him. Uh, I was told by Johnny not to pay him, and I, I was going to pay him anyhow. So he comes into the office, and when he comes in there, he sits down, and I've got, I'm going to give him 1500 again. And he says, you don't have to pay me, Bob. He said, they found out Bob Johnson's not with anybody, and they're going to kill him. He was afraid to take my money because he had been told by these people, by the, you know, by the mob, by whoever he's paying, that you know you can't collect from him. And we have all that on tape. So what, what happens now is the feds have to go and have to warn Bob Johnson that they, they found out there's a hit on him. And they, they wind up going and warning him. I was very happy to do, you know, to go see Johnny because one of the things that they were saying in the newspapers was I owed thousands, I owed hundreds of thousands to the bookmakers. And that's why I went to the feds for my own protection. And I wanted to be able to show in court, as we did, that I had no problems money wise and I didn't have to pay anybody. The mob boss and Johnny DeFranco was one of the top mob bosses. And he told me I didn't have to pay. And, you know, it also showed the power of the mob. It was really interesting, too, about Bob Johnson. They eventually arrest him based on my information. Among other things, they charge him with intimidation. He's calling me on the phone, screaming at me and, and whatever. And this is all being recorded. So Bob Johnson gets indicted. 
And when he gets indicted, he's taken into custody and he's over at the MCC. At the same time he's at the MCC, we've got Rocky and Felice and we've got about half a dozen of the mobsters who are also at the MCC. And they basically have complete control of the place. Pat Marcy and those people have complete control. They can do whatever they want over there. And we can get anybody, we can get anybody sent any place we want to the penitentiaries. Eddie Jensen was able to take care of that. He's in there a short period of time and suddenly he winds up dead. <laughs> they claim that he committed suicide by putting a bag over his head. I think I, I think he had some assistance in that. Here's a guy who's charged with bookmaking. He's facing maybe two or three years tops in the penitentiary. He apparently has all kinds of money and he commits suicide. Yeah, right. Who's in there at the same time on the same floor with him that Rocky and police and about half a dozen other mobsters in Sally D. Who's Sally D? I met Sally D when I first, uh, when I was still a policeman. When I was a policeman and I was gambling, I gambled with him. He owned a pizza place up in the northwest suburbs, and he was a bookmaker. And I bet with him and beat him constantly. In fact, there were a couple of times when he asked if he could, you know, if he could pay me the next week because he was short the money and fine, no problem. I'd see him all the time over at the club because I'm over at the clubhouse all the time and I'm at the, I'm in the nightclubs all the time with him. And uh, he eventually moved up the ranks. He became one of the top bosses right under Rocky and right under Rocky and Felice under Joe Nagal. He was one of those, he was one of those, and oh, that brings up something else I just thought about. Uh, he became a top, he, he became, in fact, he was advertised in the papers and on TV as, as the top, you know, number two guy in the, in the, in the mob and whatever. When we all knew that was nonsense, but he had moved up into a, a relatively powerful position, but he was under Joe Nagal. One of the one of the things that just came to my mind uh, with another with another bookmaker during the time when I was playing, as so I'm a lawyer now, and and it's after the Harry Alleman case, and and I'm meeting with Butchie all the time and with Harry over at Calder at Counselors Row all the time, meeting with Pat Marcy, and uh, and I'd see them and I'd be socializing with them there at the restaurant, not at, not at the Counselors Row table, at one of the other booths. I owed uh, Hal Smith. Hal Smith was a major bookmaker. This is the one that they eventually killed. And they got indicted. They got indicted for it. it. Was it was Sally D was involved in that? Was was charged with the murder along with a number of the others. I owed I owed uh, him. I think about twenty five or thirty thousand one particular week, and uh, it was a week where I won some good money. But different people owed me money. Others owed me a lot more. And somebody who owed me a, a large sum of money asked for a couple of more days to come up with it. And I said, fine. And, and I owed uh, Hale Smith about, about 25000 And I saw him over at, and he, was, he used to hang around Rush Street. And I saw him over there across the street. And he was a big guy, you know, a big guy, but not, not somebody that, uh, that anybody feared for a lot of reasons. So it was like Tuesday when we normally straighten out. And I just told him, I said, I'll have it in a couple of days. He says, I want it. You were supposed to have it today. And he's like, you know, you're supposed to have it today. And I said, well, I just don't. I said, I'll get it to you by Thursday. And, uh, and the next day, Wednesday, I'm at counselors. I'm sitting in a booth with Butchie and we're talking. And uh, George, the owner of the restaurant, comes over and he says, somebody was asking for you. And, and, I, and I said, who? And he points him out. It was this big English guy. This guy was about maybe 6'4". I had seen him a number of times. At the, uh, I used to go all the time up to the one of the hotel restaurants where they had a nightclub 
up there. And I used to see him up there all the time. I had no idea who he was, but he was very loud, very vocal, and a, and a big, in a, in a big, mean-looking guy. And I would hear him talking at times with people, and he had, a, he had an English accent. And I walk up and, you know, what's up? And he says, you know, I'm here to collect the money you owe Hal Smith. I says, what? I'm here to collect the money. What do you mean you're here to collect the money? I said, you know, I told him I'll have it tomorrow. Well, you, you better have it, he says. I go, I go back over and I sit down and, and Butchie, you know, and they could see that this guy was like, you know, uh, in my face. And they, Butchie says, what's that about? I said, I owe some money to Hal Smith and, and this jag office says is coming, you know, it's coming to collect it. And he said, who is he? I said, I never, I never, I said, I've never, I, I have no idea. I said, I've seen the guy on Rush Street. I've noticed him over the last maybe year or so on Rush Street all the time. Uh, I have no idea who he is. And he, who's he collecting for? And I said, uh, Hal Smith. He said, uh, what I want you to do, he said, see if you can, see if you can wait. You wait until he calls you again. He says, don't, don't pay Smith. Wait until he calls you again. And when he does, arrange to, you know, arrange to meet him over at the Walgreens over on Chicago Avenue. There's a Walgreens in the corner of Chicago and Michigan. And he says, arrange to meet him there. And now this is like Friday. I get a call this time, you know, from this guy. And you, know, you were supposed to pay him, you know, if I have to do something, you know, something's going to happen. I said, oh, no, no. I said, no, no. I, I, I promised I'll have the money. I said, I'll meet you tomorrow. I said, I'll meet you tomorrow over at Walgreens over there in Michigan. And I knew he obviously he's on, he's in Rush Street all the time. <clears throat> so he said, you better be there. and You better have the money. Uh, I, t- I tell Butchie, okay, it's all set. I'm going to meet him at about, I was going to meet him. I think it was around 8.30 or 9. It was going to be early in the morning, you know. Okay. And Butchie says, all right, tell him you'll meet him and, uh, and we'll take care of it. I drive over now and I park the car. And when I park the car, I look and I see this guy sitting there. I don't see anybody else around. I like him walking in and he's sitting there and I sit down in front of him. I'm not going to pay him anything. You know, I've got money, but not 25000 with me. And he says, you know, where, where's the money? And before I can say anything, the waitress walks over and she says, there's a telephone call for you. And I walk over and, you know, obviously I know who it's going to be. I get in the phone and it's Butchie. And he says, take a hike. <laughs> I said, what? He says, you know, he says, take a hike. And so I, I give the girl the phone back and I turn around. Who's come walking through the front door but Butchie and two other guys. These were a couple of the other collectors. And uh, as I walk out and I get in my car, I look up and I see the three of them sitting in the booth, one next to him and the other two across from him. I get in the car and I, and I drive away and go about my business. And I go back down to my office and I start doing my, you know, my betting for the day. I get a call on Sunday from Hal Smith. Where's my money? I said, where's your money? I said, I paid it to your guy. I said, I met him over at uh, the Walgreens and I gave him the money. Okay. I never saw the guy again. I'm just hoping they scared him out of out of town, but uh, never saw the guy again. How you never that, heard from again or saw again? Well, they killed him. And obviously you never saw the British intimidator either. I never saw him again. You never, never saw him on Rush Street, never saw him anywhere. And I used to see him once or twice a week. He'd be there. He, that's where he hung out all the time. You know, you look up on your computer, Hal Smith. You know, that was the one that they killed him over at the house. Murder of Chicago mob bookkeeper Hal Smith. Trunk music, the day the world changed for the Chicago mob. He wasn't paying He wasn't paying street tax. The term trunk music is modem code for the gurgling sound emitted by a dead body that's been slashed in a car trunk for too long. 
I don't mean to laugh, but I just find all these nicknames and terms and the nomenclature for everything around the mafia is kind of comedic. Trunk music, the sound of someone gurgling to death in a trunk. It had to be brutal. In fact, yeah, sure. in fact, what what happened to him, I'm sure, when I met with him, I didn't call him. He had a clerk that worked the office. And Hale Smith, he wasn't paying street tax. He wasn't with anybody. He had been warned a few times and just basically, you know, told him to go to hell. He thought he was a big, tough guy. The guy that was his clerk obviously was part of the setup for him because I didn't play with him anymore, but he was over there all the time on Rush Street and moving the money back and forth. He had taken over all their business. In 1985, uh, Smith, 48, had been warned by none other than the boss of the outfit's North Suburban gambling operation, Salvatore Salidi de Laurentiis. For months, Sally D. had been telling Smith that if he didn't start paying the outfit a 6000 per month share of his sportsbook profits, he would indeed end up as, quote, trunk music, according to the federal authorities. Trunk music. Yeah, he faced the music. And he made the music, the trunk music. What, what, they had, what they had done, obviously, with him, you know, the clerks working for him belonged to, the, they, they were connected to the mobsters. In other words, Sally D and the others had these guys, you know, under their, under their wing. And what they did was they took over all his business. And apparently, too, I was told, you know, and, you know just sitting there listening afterwards, they found over a million dollars in his garage you know, money that he had stashed. After they, they found out where the money was hidden, they tortured him up there, I guess, and found out where the money was hidden. Well, there's but, there's uh, uh, some brutal photos of him, of his corpse, and it looks like someone was putting cigars out on his face. They took a blowtorch to some of these people, is what they were doing. If you saw the picture of Butchie, they took a blowtorch to him. When I say I heard that, I mean, I happened to be there when people were talking about it, you know, afterwards, and you know, over at the club, and they were talking about the uh, yeah they got they got over a million dollars out of the uh, they said out of the garage. He obviously told them where it was. You know, it was a brutal time for him. It was a period of time where they had him up the house, and they just totally tortured him. But he had become one of the the bosses. But it was really funny because Bobby Avenatti and people like that that were nobody would would make when he'd come back into the club once in a while, Marco's club. Guys like Bobby would laugh at him and make fun of him because he would be running around wearing these fur coats and the rest of it. And he'd be at my restaurant all the time at uh, Greco's with the piano player, you know, singing, you know, and wearing these $25,000 fur coats and the rest of it. He flourished on being, you know, the reputation as being a top mobster. Butchie Petroselli, there are photos of him online. His death photos are horrific. There's no question they took a blowtorch to him. I met him at Greektown. Uh, because that's where he paid me on some cases. There was an interesting restaurant there, at Redditi's is what they called it. You know, all the mob, a lot of the mobsters met. When I would meet with Harry, he'd always have about three or four people, sometimes even more with him. And that's how they ran around all the time. After a while, they suddenly became almost like competitors, I guess. Both of them were there, and their crews were there. They'd take over them. They'd be, you know, like six or seven of them lined across the bar. And most of them were like little guys. And when I say little, short guys. A lot of their crew weren't these big, tough-looking guys. They were relatively short guys. And Harry always had a few Mexicans, and so did Butchie. When you say Harry, you're talking about Harry Alleman. Yeah. Wait, was Harry Alleman amongst his little group kind of like a 
celebrity, if you will, or was oh, that's had, an understatement. So, so, so he yeah. had like these hanger honors that were kind of groupies. The, these are guys that are out doing their bidding. These are guys that are out collecting with them and whatever. They do whatever they're told and they run the errands or whatever. You know, they're strange. There's they're strange people in so many ways. They want to show how you know how important or how powerful or how tough they are. They'd always have all these people around. I had lunch with him there. And when he left there, that's when he was grabbed and killed. Uh, he was never seen alive again. Who's, anywhere. Who, who, who? You're talking about? Butchie. Butchie. Butchie Petrocelli. So Raditi still exists. It's 222 South Halstead. Yes. He left there. That was the, the, like the fifth person that I had the last meal with. There were like three other guys with him when he left. They get these guys to turn on them. The story I got afterwards from Harry's uh, from Harry's dad, Butchie was a stool pigeon, you know, which is bullshit. I know why they killed him. They killed him because Harry was upset. When Harry went went into custody, they started collecting street tax for Harry. Everybody had a, all the bookmakers had to collect and had to take two percent off off all their payoffs and give that money to you know to people. It was supposed to be for Harry's defense. Apparently, Butchie supposedly, uh, you know, I got this from others. You know, Butchie, uh, you know, wasn't paying all the money he was supposed to. What's amazing about so many of them, they're almost all gamblers and losers. And the reason I got to be so close to so many of them, the gambling operations that they had in the city. Unbelievable. Okay, we're going to end it there. Thank you for tuning in. As always, that's the end of Conversation 13. Stay connected. 14 will be coming soon. Send feedback. Follow us. We want to hear from you. Thank you.